From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law. Are plaintiff's lawyers involved in a kind of competition? Can Congress force a judicial code on the justices? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Kyle Janner. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is it unusual, a grand jury like this, to suspect people aren't telling the truth? One of the first times the Justice Department has called for the breakup of a major company. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Madison Mills in for June Grasso this week. We've gone from Miami to Jersey to Washington this week covering former President Trump's indictment and how Washington is responding. Today we're going to stick in Washington, focusing on the Supreme Court nearing a decision on President Biden's student debt forgiveness program. Plus, remember Sam Bankman-Fried? We'll break down the latest legal troubles ahead for him and we'll unpack the latest wrinkle in the PGA Live deal. But first, let's start Start with the Supreme Court busy deciding a litany of cases from those involving the IRS to one that's closely watched by thousands of students, President Biden's loan forgiveness plan. Here to discuss the latest is our SCOTUS reporter at large, Greg Store. Greg, always great to get your thoughts on all things happening with the Supreme Court. Can you just give us the context here? Remind us the details of the student debt plan and what the challenge is that's getting discussed in court. Sure, Madison. Uh, happy to be on. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, President Joe Biden's plan to slash the student debt of about 40 million or more than 40 million people. There are estimates that it could, could uh, cost as much as $400 billion. And the, the legal question is whether the administration had the authority to do that, specifically the Education Department. There's a, a statute known as the HEROES Act, and a group of states and borrowers have sued saying that that law does not give the Education Department the authority to just eliminate this this uh, sweeping amount of student loans. But some students have already received a little bit of student loan forgiveness, correct? The program did start, um, but it really didn't get very far before lower court injunctions uh, got in the way. And so right now it is on hold and won't resume unless the court sides with the Biden administration in this case. So, so talk me through that. What is the likelihood of that happening? Well, the arguments sure made it seem like uh, that the, the court's conservative justices didn't think the education department had the authority to, to do this. There was a lot of questioning about uh, the, the statutory language of this, this HEROES Act. The law says the Secretary of Education can waive or modify provisions in the law so that debtors are not placed in a worse position financially because of a national emergency. And so there, there were some real questions about whether that language covered uh, this uh, this action. 
if the Biden administration is going to win this case, it is probably going to be on the question of standing. That is, do these states and borrowers even have the legal right to go into court to challenge this program? We didn't hear as much about that during the argument. So that may be an open question. So it's an open question, but given what we know about where each judge kind of sits politically, do we have any sort of insight or tell as to what the decision might end up being? Well, you know, based on the the, the merits question, whether, you know, the 2003 law uh, allows this, you know, what we've seen from this court is that they are pretty skeptical of, you know, broad executive branch assertions of power. We've seen them, you know, strike down the eviction moratorium during the the pandemic. We've seen them block that that, uh, vaccine or testing rule from OSHA during the pandemic. We've seen them limit the power of the EPA. Um, That standing question, though, is a little trickier because uh, that can go a lot of different ways. We had a a big case uh, that was resolved today involving the Indian Child Welfare for Act case, where the court tossed out part of a challenge to this law, which gives Indian uh, tribes and and families preferences in terms of uh, fostering and adopting children, uh, Native American children. And the court tossed out part of that challenge on standing grounds, and that was a pretty broad ruling. Seven justices were on it. So standing can be unpredictable, and that's kind of the reason, just based on the argument, you know, I I can't sit here and tell you I'm really confident that this, this program is going down. Well, it sounds like President Biden has a little bit of the same gut feeling. Here's what he had to say about his options if the court does not side with him on this. Some of the same members of Congress who want to cut student aid personally received loans to keep their small businesses afloat during the pandemic. Some of the same members of Congress who supported this bill voted for huge tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy as well. But when it comes to hardworking Americans trying to get ahead, Dealing with the student debt relief, that's where they drew the line. So Biden there talking a little bit about the political response that he's getting from uh, Congress in particular. But, uh, Greg, I know you cover the Supreme Court for us, but if you had to put on your White House Washington hat for me here, do you think Biden has any other options to get this uh, through in any other way if if the Supreme Court does not side uh, where he hopes they will? Well, there are certainly things he could try. There are some options that folks like Elizabeth Warren have been pressing the White House to to try. Uh, so there may be a, maybe a backup plan. Obviously, the the administration would like its you know Plan A to, to to succeed and doesn't want to talk too much about Plan B. You know, from a political standpoint, and this isn't you know the the area I cover, but it's I think it's interesting to think about. You know, if the Supreme Court blocks this, is does it, that help Joe Biden? politically or hurt him? Is he able to say, look, I tried, the Supreme Court got in the way, or does it make it look like he's not effective at at putting his priorities into practice? And definitely a big question for him as that 2024 election gets closer and closer by the second. Greg Storr, thank you so much for joining us. Greg is our Supreme Court expert, uh, voice and reporter down in Washington. I want to bring in Claire Valentine from Bloomberg News. Uh, Claire always does a fantastic job of covering the personal stories behind these big issues that we talk about. So, Claire, uh, thank you so much for coming in. You've done this great piece on the anxiety that this delay in student debt forgiveness is causing for students. Talk to me about what you learned in your reporting. Yeah, so this has been a three-year saga for a lot of people. Loans have been on pause, and then there's been dates where 
government officials say loans are going to resume, and then they get extended again. So right now, we're pretty certain that loans are going to come back on August 30th. So that means that people will be required to make monthly payments again. And from looking at prior statistics, we see that most people have an average of about $400 a month in student loan payments. That's a big chunk of cash. And people are going to have to add that onto already tight budgets. So in addition to that monetary hit, you're also seeing people stressed and just really confused about what's going on with forgiveness and payments restarting. And I know some of your sources talked about how there's this misconception that this is, you know, just extra stimulus money for people who already have enough. Uh, talk to me about what you learned about that piece. Yeah, so this money really is designed for people who are are not making a ton of money. This is not for people who are, you know, got law degrees and suddenly are making six figures. This is all designed for people who maybe got a degree and are working hard, but their income is just not matching up with their expenses and not mm-hmm. allowing them to make those loan payments without sacrificing other areas of their life. And even if Biden's forgiveness program does go through, no more than 45% of borrowers will have their loans wiped out completely. So you've still got a ton of people with, you know, in some cases, six figures worth of student loan debt that they're paying on. Yeah, I'm just looking at your story here. Uh, you start off with Allie Rooker, who is a 30-year-old in Detroit with $80,000 in federal loans. Yeah, and that really just impacts your whole life. I yeah. mean, you know, Allie is trying to buy a home right now, and even with just this limbo that we're in with the Supreme Court, she doesn't know how much of a home she can afford. I mean, $10,000 is a, is a big chunk in terms of looking at your whole financial picture. So even beyond just the the monthly budgets, people are having to put big life decisions on hold as we wait to see what happens with Biden's forgiveness plan. And because it's Bloomberg, I'm going to end with with a question for you on just kind of the economic impact of that, right? Uh, What do we anticipate happening as uh, we are anticipating that this is not going to end up going through, right? So once these student loan payments have to restart, how big is the economic impact of that? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, about 15% of borrowers were behind on payments. That's expected to return and maybe even surpass that. Um, We've seen some reports there was one from financial firm Jefferies that was comparing the potential impact of student loans returning to the 2013 fiscal cliff. Wow. So it really is expected to hurt the consumer to decrease the amount of disposable income people have for eating out, for spending on goods and services. And you know, just like we saw inflation hit people hard, this is expected to also hit people hard and make them have less money to spend on on everyday items. Did you mainly speak with sources who are those individual people, or did you talk with any uh, investors or economists about their outlook for it as well, or were you focused on? Yeah, that? so there's there's mostly uh, what I've spent my time focusing on with reporting is is student loan is- issuer or student loan holders, yeah. but they're definitely, uh, it's something that economists are starting to look at, and I think for so long, you know, financial experts and economists didn't know what was going to happen with this. The restart date got extended so many times, yeah. but now, you know, especially when we're looking at what the Fed's doing and yeah. trying to decide on rate hikes, this is going to play a big pic- picture role. Yeah, absolutely, Claire. Well, thank you so much for bringing us uh, the people behind the story. As always, really appreciate it. That was Claire Ballantyne with Bloomberg News. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Madison Mills, in for June Grasso. This is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Law. I'm Madison Mills in for June Grasso this week. U.S. prosecutors in that case against Sam Bankman-Fried asked the judge to set aside five counts the FTX co-founder is contesting. Why? To avoid trial delays. This comes after Bankman-Fried won a Bahamian court ruling earlier in the week on those five counts. Here to discuss what it all means and the impact is Ava Benny Morrison, Bloomberg News legal reporter. Ava, Ava thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, before we get into the specific updates here, I kind of feel like the FTX situation is on the back burner for me and my coverage as I've moved on to Coinbase and Binance. Can you give us a little recap legally where, where SBF is at here? Sure, yes, it certainly does seem a long time ago um, that he was arrested in the Bahamas. Uh, he's about four months out from his scheduled trial uh, in federal court in Manhattan. He's pleaded not guilty uh, to 13 different criminal charges. Uh, we're in the stage at the moment where the lawyers are arguing over um, discovery, um, what different material they're after, and in this case, uh, specifically as we heard today, uh, the validity of some of those charges. And talk me through that argument. What is the case for why uh, some of those charges would be invalid? Mm. So Sam Bankman-Fried was extradited back from the Bahamas to the U.S. uh, in December after he was arrested, and he consented to extradition. Um, At that point, uh, U.S. prosecutors had presented an eight-count indictment, uh, mainly dealing with the alleged fraud at FTX, and he uh, agreed to come back to the U.S. to face those charges. Uh, In the months after he returned, the U.S. then filed uh, five additional charges against him. So he is essentially challenging that, saying that wasn't part of my agreement um, and under extradition law, uh, you can't file those charges. Uh, You need consent from the Bahamas and you haven't got that yet. So is the key piece there, would you say, does it hinge on the extradition? It it hinges on the Bahamas. Uh, We heard today prosecutors said that they had been in communication with the government um, down there and were of the view that they were going to provide that consent well before the trial, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, Behind the scenes, um, Sam Bankman-Fried's legal team has gone directly to the Bahamas and said, before you provide that consent, we want to be heard on why we don't think um, these charges are valid. So there's been they're fighting this battle on a number of fronts at the moment, and those are going to be uh, very critical to monitor as we uh, continue to cover this trial. Can you walk me through more broadly what his defense might look like as we get closer uh, to the trial date, even if it does face some delays here? Sure. Once we get over this legal hurdle and the judge makes a decision on whether the post-extradition charges can be separated, um, he has given 
a little bit of a hint uh, as to what his defence might be. Um, part of that hinges on the advice he said he got from counsel. Um, he, he is trying to subpoena some information from a law firm uh, that provided a lot of advice and guidance to FTX and Alameda. Uh, and he's essentially suggesting that he acted uh, on the advice of counsel in doing a lot of the things that pop up uh, in the indictment as well. Uh, we've also got a little bit of a insight into some of the arguments uh, he might make at the trial um, based on his uh, rebuttals uh, in the weeks after that he was he was uh, charged. Uh, he's essentially, in a few different um, blog posts, has put down the... Um, multi-billion dollar hole at FTX to um, FTX being a victim of um, successive market collapses uh, and it all being sort of a problem of accounting as opposed to criminality. And from your uh, legal standpoint, talk to me about those those defenses, right? Is that something that you've seen uh, hold up in court previously? How, how likely is he to be successful with that type of legal argument? Uh, it's hard to tell. I think the the defense of um, acting on the advice of your counsel is an interesting one uh, that hasn't come up um, too frequently. Um, but unfortunately uh, for him, the the, the, the crux of the criminal allegations here is that um, he misused billions of dollars in customer funds and spent that on personal expenses, property um, investments through Alameda Research. The legal advice doesn't um, address that from what we've seen. So he still um, needs an argument against um, the, the core of those criminal allegations as well, um, as opposed to putting it down to... Um, you know, issues with accounting and, and being just a victim of um, a market downfall. I think, you know, you could see uh, someone making that argument before, before a jury and you're dealing with these complicated matters where we're talking about cryptocurrency and, um, you know, hedge funds, um, crypto hedge funds and different investments and whatnot. So um, I think the prosecution will really make an effort to sort of simplify this to the jury so they understand um, what the core issues are. So what's next then for this case? What's the next step that we can expect to have you back on to cover? Mm. So next up will be the judge making a decision on whether he is going to split the case. Uh, so Sam Bankman-Fried will go uh, to trial on those eight original charges, which include um, the fraud charges, the, the core allegations of the case, uh, and then the remaining five will be uh, essentially kicked down the road till next year and potentially go to trial then. So we're really um, keeping an eye out um, for that decision. And forgive me if this is totally not a smart question, but I just got off the week covering a lot about former President Trump and his indictment and how uh, there, are, there are several trials surrounding the former president right now. I'm curious if there is going to be any read through of that uh, for SBF. Could we expect to see further indictments, uh, further charges, either federally or, or in other states? Against Sam Bankman-Fried? Yes. I don't think so, uh, because we're seeing uh, this tension over uh, the superseding indictments that have already been filed against Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, specifically in New York. Uh, it seems like he is uh, going really hard to challenge the validity of those. So I can't imagine that um, 
federal prosecutors in Manhattan are sort of gearing up to file uh, even more charges on top of him while they're still trying to navigate um, this conflict. But that said, um, there's still a question mark around um, some other people who were central to FTX um, that uh, haven't signed cooperation agreements like some of the executives have. Um, so we'll be watching to see if, I guess, there will be any other criminal charges brought against other people who are tied to FTX. Right, that's a great point. Uh, in our final minute with you, the one thing that we haven't talked about is this uh, accusation of Sam Bigman Freed bribing Chinese officials to free that $40 million frozen um, on the crypto exchange. Uh, what, what do we need to know about that charge? So this was the latest uh, charge that was filed. Um, prosecutors filed that in a superseding indictment in March, uh, accusing Sam Bankman-Fried of um, directing the bribe of uh, Chinese government officials, um, organising to pay them $40 million uh, to help free, unfreeze um, crypto assets that were on a uh, crypto exchange over in that country. Uh, so he was charged under with foreign bribery, um, but the, the penalty for that is a lot lower than um, the penalties he is facing uh, in the fraud charges. Uh, and, and I will make, make the note that that foreign bribery charge is one of the offences that he is challenging and mm. arguing is invalid. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ava, for joining us to uh, run through all of the details there. That was Ava Benny Morrison, Bloomberg News legal reporter, breaking down everything you need to know about the latest with Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX case. I'm Madison Mills, in for June Grasso. Coming up, more on crypto. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.